Turn with me this evening to 1 Timothy chapter 3 in your New Testament scriptures, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to read a few verses from the end of the chapter and then use those to introduce the report from the General Assembly, give you a highlight of the main events and business, and then with the time remaining, look at the verses that were read. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let me read verses 14 through 16. 1 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 14, let us hear God's word. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Amen. We'll end our reading there. Let me pray for us again. Lord, we come now to read your word. To explain some of these sentences and, of course, to comment upon the recent work of your church. So give us your help, because our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Without you, we can do nothing, but with you, all things are possible. So help us in our consideration tonight and equip us by your word and spirit to do the mission you've given to us. And we give you our thanks and our praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my goal tonight is a little more modest than it's been in last years. I've often given a report from the General Assembly and often walked through the theology of how Presbyterianism works. It even gives us a General Assembly and then highlighting some of the main uh, events that took place. And I've gone back and checked. Those tend to be my longest sermons uh, in this church, which on a Sunday night is, is asking for a lot. So I'm going to attempt tonight. Uh, to give you just an overview of the major actions that were taken with some commentary on the theology that gets us to this place as Presbyterians. If you want to read more, I did post on the church Facebook page uh, the By Faith article that laid out all the business that took place. I know some of you have told me you've already looked at that. So that is there if you want more details. And then after GA, the stated clerk always releases a summary where he kind of says, look, here's the main things uh, that happens, a write-up of the events. And of course, as soon as that is made available, we'll print that, we'll put it in our text, so it'll be there for you to consider. But I did want to be able to tell you something now uh, where you didn't have to wait for that, but didn't have to necessarily read all the details uh, that were linked to on the church page. So that's what we'll cover uh, this evening. Again, I think it's helpful to remember the theology that does lead us to this place as Presbyterians. As Presbyterians, attempting to follow God's word and how we govern the church, your, your church, you elect elders. And those elders then represent you at all levels of the church's government or the church's life or the church's courts. So every elder in this church, all of your ruling elders and your pastor, the teaching elder, some churches have more than one teaching elder, but we have one here, you, they are all selected by the congregation. 
There is never a pastor or elder appointed to a congregation by some outside body. You elect your elders. And when those elders meet, we sit in session. That's why we call it a session. And that constitutes a church court where we can deliberate and govern Christ's church. Where we can attempt to apply the word of God, rightly interpret the word of God for the people. If need be, handle discipline cases, which is a part of church life. Trying to keep Christ's sheep from straying away from the truth. Your local session is tasked with that responsibility. But being Presbyterians, we also believe that our local church is connected to other churches. And so other elected elders from other churches often meet regionally. We call that Presbytery. You're part of Calvary Presbytery, which covers the upstate of South Carolina. It meets four times a year. Those are not a second tier of elders over these elders. I go to those meetings. Rick, Aaron, others go to those meetings and represent Roebuck in Presbytery. And so then beyond that, we have one more level, the General Assembly. And once again, that is not a new group of people over you. That is the same people from your local church representing the church nationally and getting together in order to do business that's best done on the broadest or highest level. So, for example, we handle a lot of things here on the local levels of church, but in order to approve who will be pastors, before I could show up and start preaching to you, you called, but the regional church had to make sure... This guy believes the Bible and our stated standards. That's what Presbyterians do. So then when you get up to the national level, you have a group meeting to say, okay, what is best done by the whole church? And some of those things are missions. Those, those are still done locally and regionally. Some of those things are our college, our seminary. When there are discipline cases, if the person believes they're not handled well or other people think they're not handled well, they can be appealed. And so you have a level of appeals, and our General Assembly functions like a Supreme Court for appeals and discipline cases. Some things are best done by the whole church. And that, of course, is a model pattern, we believe, after Acts 15, where when a doctrinal dispute disrupted the churches, the elders and apostles could assemble in Jerusalem, deliberate on the issue, reach a decision, and then in Acts 16 we read, deliver those decisions to the churches to be followed. So we're attempting to flesh out that biblical model in our courts. And thus, we have annually a general assembly. So by the way, that was one sentence in my notes. I'm not starting well with being succinct, <laughs> am I? Uh, but it's good to remember those things. So GA is typically starts on a Tuesday night. Goes until Thursday night. Business is scheduled for Friday, but mercifully we haven't had to do that in recent years. And this year we actually concluded on Thursday at 6 p.m. So last year we concluded on Friday at 1 a.m. So 6 p.m. was a great uh, pace for this year. The first thing you do is elect a moderator. That's a elder who will lead the meetings throughout the week. And typically you have two Full days of business. Wednesday and Thursday are full. You have a worship service each day. Now, the main business that I want to put before you is as follows. First, I do want you to know about some of the things that were referred or related to us in the stated clerk's report. It's kind of a state of the church 
report. And it had negatives and positives. On the negative side, or on the side that makes us you know, want to pray and then wonder, uh, this was our third year in the PCA of a slight decline in membership. So the PCA for most of its years has actually experienced a lot of rapid growth. It's kind of planed off, and then this in the third year, we've seen a slight decline. The average age of a PCA church member is 55. Now, having said that, we had more people profess faith in Christ in our churches than the previous year by about a thousand. So praise God, people are being saved in our churches. We saw one of those in our own, uh, in our own communion here. Attendance, it's about 60 to 80 percent of the pre-COVID level. You kind of read that how you want. Is people not really committed, dropping off naturally, or hey, people need to get back into church. It's about 60 to 80 percent of the pre-COVID level of attendance. And of course, church attendance in America has gone down. Church attendance in America is about half of what it was 20 years ago. I know those statistics continue uh, to cause alarm. I do, I do think it's worth looking at whether church attendance equals people following Christ less, or whether there are Christians who are not in church for a variety of reasons. I don't think that's an ideal, uh, but that would be something worth thinking about as a church and as leaders. On the positive side, the average age of ministers in the PCA is 51, which is far younger than most mainline and even evangelical churches. So God continues very kind, giving us new generations of ministers. The PCA plants a new mission church every two weeks, uh, which is what an encouragement, 25, 26 churches every year. Prior to COVID, it was about one per week. So we'd really like to get back to that, but I still think one every two weeks is, is amazing. And uh, strong giving exists in the PCA. We don't want to be all about money, but it, it is, it's God's kindness to provide. And so when we see that, we are thankful. So I think, a good, I think as a church and as elders, what we need to take away from that is we need to be ready to reach out and minister to our current generation. That for whatever reason, different reasons at times, is unchurched and not as familiar with the gospel, or has various uh, barriers to the gospel, that the more we can learn about those and be able to communicate with folks outside our walls, the better off we'll be in order to engage in evangelism, call, not, not to accommodate, but then to call people to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps in a level where they'll hear what we're saying and be willing to listen. Then you had on Wednesday morning the report of the Ad Interim Committee on domestic abuse and sexual assault. This was the report uh, of two years worth of labor uh, from a well-staffed committee that was tasked with writing up a report slash manual slash reference resource uh, that would help equip us as elders and people in the church to quote, protect, identify, and respond well to abuse when it happens. And having finished the report uh, at the end of the week, it, it is a wonderful resource. It's well-written, it's thorough, it's pastoral, it, it's clear, it's a very good tool to help us be educated in this area. Now, if you follow the news in the Christian world, our report is not the same kind of report as the Southern Baptist report, which investigated the extent of abuse in Southern Baptist churches. This was more of a manual on how to, as I said, uh, protect, identify, and respond well to that abuse should it happen. How not to fall into some of the traps, quite frankly, that have gotten churches into trouble 
and trying to handle abuse exclusively in-house or sending people back to bad environments. Uh, this is a manual that will help us avoid some of those mistakes. It wasn't the same kind of investigation, though you could have such an investigation asked for as a result of this report. But Rachel Den Hollander, you're probably familiar with her. She was the whistleblower on Larry Nassar and USA Gymnastics. She was an advisor to the committee. And she was one of the folks that helped present the report and just did a fantastic job. So the report, it addresses not only domestic and sexual abuse, but spiritual abuse as well. Which again, if you follow the news in the evangelical world, that has happened. It happens in churches. The more we can be able to spot it and resist it, the better off we will be in our mission. So that was kind of a bright spot of the assembly. Then you had action taken on the NAE. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the National Association of Evangelicals. With the Bob Jones background, I was more familiar with it. Uh, but the NAE, uh, for the third time, the PCA entertained an overture to lead the National Association of Evangelicals. So the PCA has been a member of this group since the PCA's founding. It's a large group, a broad group, that exists to connect and represent Christians. So a, kind of a, a connection group for evangelicals as well as representing them. Some involvement there with Washington, uh, taking positions on political issues and representation and what have you. So in recent years, people, actually since our founding, I looked this up while preparing the report, there, there's been opposition to the PCA being involved with the NAE. Part of that is the view of many on the spirituality of the church, that the church doesn't exist to lobby for political outcomes or take political stands. And we're a spiritual institution. Uh, that's not what we do. In recent years, and this came out in the speeches, so this is a fair statement, a lot of the opposition is also based on some of the NAE's political positions, whether that involves COVID, climate change, the death penalty, or what have you. Uh, there was dissatisfaction expressed with the positions or the leanings that they have expressed or taken. So there was opposition to remaining with the NAE. Those who are in favor of staying identified it's an opportunity to work with other Christians on issues of common cause, such as pro-life advocacy. So three times we've been asked to leave by, by members of the church. The previous two times, including just last year, it failed. This year, the vote to leave succeeded. It was about a 60-40 split. And so as of now, the, NA, uh, the PCA is no longer a member of the NAE. And then we come to overtures. And overtures are, this is the heart of GA. So an overture is a request. A presbytery can send a request to the GA, asking it to take some kind of action. Change the book of church order here, leave the NAE, what have you. By the way, the overtures start in the local churches. Presbyteries don't write it. Churches like Roebuck write overtures. So this church can be involved on the national level should it so choose to send an overture to Calvary Presbytery. It would need to be approved by Calvary Presbytery to go up to the next level. But this is how these things begin. They begin on the local level. Now, when overtures come to the General Assembly, they are assigned to whichever group it touches on. Most of them end up with the overtures committee. 
And the Overtures Committee is represented by every presbytery in the PCA. You can send a ruling elder and a teaching elder from every presbytery to the Overtures Committee. And that committee will first debate the overtures. They may even amend some of the language based on the debate, but then bring those overtures to the body. And the body will either say, yes, we like it, no, we don't, or we're going to send it back to you. You need to do further work. And that work might get done that week. Usually it gets done at a subsequent GA. Two of the overtures that came to the General Assembly address matters of human sexuality. This has been an ongoing discussion in the PCA for several years now, especially going back to 2018 with the first Revoice Conference, uh, the Nashville Statement that was adopted by the PCA in 2019, uh, the trial of Greg Johnson by Missouri Presbytery, and what have you. Two overtures, several overtures came to us on that issue. But the following two were passed by the General Assembly. The first is Overture 29, which reads, Officers in the Presbyterian Church in America must be above reproach in their walk and Christ-like in their character. While office bearers will see spiritual perfection only in glory, they will continue in this life to confess and to mortify remaining sins in light of God's work of progressive sanctification. Therefore, to be qualified for office, they must affirm the sinfulness of fallen desires, the reality and hope of progressive sanctification, and be committed to the pursuit of spirit-empowered victory over their sinful temptations, inclinations, and actions. So a statement on progressive sanctification, which would become, if passed, part of our Book of Church order that addresses standards for ordination, and this passed overwhelmingly. The second was Overture 15, which reads as follows. Men who describe themselves as homosexual, even those who describe themselves as homosexual and claim to practice celibacy by refraining from homosexual conduct, are disqualified from holding office in the Presbyterian Church in America. Now this overture first came to the assembly from the committee with a recommendation to answer it in the negative. However, that was a close vote. And if there is a vote that fails, a certain number of people can file what's known as a minority report, where they are able to be heard by the assembly and present the, con the contrasting view. After a time of debate, about 90 minutes, the minority report, which said we should answer this overture in the affirmative, was adopted as the main uh, motion. That passed by about 50 votes. Then when the assembly voted to say yes or no, that likewise passed by about 170 votes. So that overture has passed the general assembly. What must now happen is that that overture must be approved in order to take effect. It must be approved by two-thirds of the presbyteries in the PCA. So as presbyteries hold their meetings in the coming year, they will take a vote on whether or not to approve or disapprove this change to the BCO. If two-thirds or more approve, then it will come back to the GA next year 
where it must then be approved by a majority vote once again. The founders of the PCA wrote it into the documents where changing the Constitution would take a lot of time and effort. So that's why it goes through that whole process. You can hear from my reading of the overtures that the second is more specific than the first. The first speaks to progressive sanctification. The second is more specific in the particular sins that it names. And that difference reflects part of the debate that the PCA is having. Can ministers who continue to struggle with same-sex attraction hold office in our denomination? And how should they describe themselves and their struggle? That is the question that keeps coming up. If that causes concern, I do want to be crystal clear, we are not having a debate on the acceptability of same-sex actions or desires. That is not what is being argued by our denomination. I, I checked recently the PCUSA statement on sexuality, which essentially says if a minister uh, wants to conduct a gay wedding, he can do it if he wants to. We won't make you do it, but he can do it if he wants to. And if a minister is involved uh, in a gay relationship, as long as he doesn't violate any of the other qualifications for ministry, he's eligible for office. Now, that is not the debate that the PCA is having. And so, again, I commend to you uh, the report that we passed last year, the Ad Interim Committee Report on Human Sexuality, which was approved by a strong majority and commended to our churches as biblically faithful. It is crystal clear that desires for the same gender are contrary to nature, contrary to God's word. They are evil desires. They should be resisted. They should be repented of. The actions that flow from such desires are inappropriate for a Christian. God's word forbids them. Those who uh, experience that struggle should see progress in their growth and grace. They should submit such desires and actions to the Lord and endeavor by the Spirit to be sanctified. And the report even goes to say it is not necessarily wise to use the language of same-sex attracted or gay Christian in describing your ongoing struggle counsels against it. It does stop short of saying one may never speak that way. So that is what you see then in these two overtures. One is a general affirmation of what has been said. The other is the attempt to make it more specific. And those then will go through your presbyteries in the coming years. We had two overtures like this passed last year. But they did not get the two-thirds approval of the Presbytery. So we will see how Overture 15 in particular goes as it makes its way through the Presbyteries. That was obviously the biggest issue, the biggest discussion time. You did have some other overtures uh, aimed, for example, at condemning CRT or condemning political violence done in Jesus' name or uh, forbidding participation and secret groups, and, and you have all sorts of, of fiery speeches and discussing these different things. But all of those particular overtures fail. So friends, having heard this report, and that is the main business, you, you may wonder, 
Do you guys just like go for a week and just fight all week? I mean, what, what else do you do uh, at this group? I, I will say this. I have a friend who's in the EPC, but he was 20 years in the PCA. And he said, we do fight a lot less than you do. So we do like to argue and, and debate. But that's okay. That's part of life in the church. So you may be wondering, well, was anything non-controversial? Most of the business was non-controversial. So I told you I had the privilege of serving on the committee that reviews the work of the Committee on Discipleship Ministries. This is the committee that works in conjunction with great commission publications to provide materials for our churches, such as the Trinity Hymnal, or such as the Sunday School material that our children use downstairs. They have lots of resources for men and for women, and, and they do a great job of resourcing the church with good books and, and, and lessons and, and people that we can connect to in order to help us do our ministry of discipleship here. I enjoy being on that committee. We have schools that are a part of our denomination. Covenant College and Covenant Seminary are both part of the PCA. They have student bodies that are growing, staff that are competent and professional, and funds to do their work. Uh, Covenant Seminary, training ministers, Covenant College, uh, giving uh, your, your children, children of the PCA and other people, a liberal arts education through a Christian worldview and doing a good job of it. RUF, our ministry that does college campus ministries, continues to see people saved uh, on college campuses. Mission to North America and Mission to the World continue to plant churches and serve the communities where they are located. And all of those groups, so the permanent committees and the people that lead them, they are all either teaching elders or ruling elders. And when they get to those positions of leadership, they are examined a second time to see if they agree with the scriptures and our standards, the Reformed faith and the Westminster standards. So I was examined when I became your pastor. But when someone reaches a leadership position in any of those groups, they're actually examined again to make sure that they're orthodox and faithful to our standards. So I'm very thankful for uh, the spiritual health that I see amongst leaders throughout the denomination. I'm very thankful. This isn't just, okay, I got to say it because I'm the pastor. I am so thankful our session and deacons uh, carve out time and funds so that I can go and be a part of the General Assembly every year. This year my family joined me uh, for the second time and it was great. Uh, there are women's activities, there are children's activities, but sometimes when those were done, they, they would join me in the hall and listen to the business until it was done, uh, and we could go home uh, together, and we would talk about what we had heard and laugh about some of the things that were said. It was this very good, uh, spiritually refreshing time, good family time. The only negative was it was 100 degrees and humid every day. I know you were hot here too, but you know, I was wearing church clothes, okay? But hey, we, we survived. We, we survived. I come home uh, physically tired, but spiritually refreshed and eager to work for the mission of the church. And so having said that, I will not preach the full sermon uh, that I have here in my notes, but I do want to look at this passage then in 1 Timothy uh, just for a moment before we close. Because I think having given this report, it's only appropriate to look at this passage that highlights God's faithfulness. And not just his faithfulness in general, but his faithfulness to his church. The word church doesn't occur much in the Gospels. 
But in one of the occurrences, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus highlights the stability, the success of the church. He will build his church. He'll build it on a rock. It's stable. Hell itself can't overcome the success of the church. He will be with it so that it continue its mission to the end of the world. And here in 1 Timothy, you really have Paul saying essentially the same thing. He identifies the church as the pillar and foundation of the truth. It's stable. He hints at the church's success when he makes reference to Jesus' ministry in verse 16. And so all I want to do is just very quickly ask and answer three questions about the church from this passage. The first would be, what is the church's Mission. What is the church here for? Why do we exist? Well, Paul says, although, verse 14, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Paul writes this letter to Timothy saying, This will help you know how people should act in church. And we'll, we'll say exactly what it means to, to act in church in, in just a moment. But notice how Paul describes the church. It's the church of the living God. The pillar and foundation of the truth. What do pillars and foundations do? They provide support. Without them, the building falls. In a modern context, we might talk about load-bearing walls. You have to get them right. Or the building will collapse. Well, Paul says the church's job is to provide support for the truth. So notice, we, we don't determine the truth. We, we don't get to say, here's what's true, here's what's not true. We don't, we don't determine the truth, but we do support and proclaim the truth. We're a steward of the truth. We function as a place where people can find truth. So what then would be our standard of truth? Well, that would be the Holy Scriptures. Paul tells Timothy just across the page, chapter 4, verse 13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. In his follow-up letter to Timothy, he makes the classic statement, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That is the task given to the church. Preach and teach the scriptures. And when you do, when you get it right, the church is proclaiming the truth. But not just any truth. We have to proclaim all truth. The whole counsel of God. But do notice that Paul highlights a specific set of truths here. A truth that is central to the scriptures. Verse 16, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The truth that the church proclaims focuses on this mystery, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is our mission? To proclaim this gospel, that Christ appeared as a man. 
He lived and died as a human. God vindicated him when he raised him from the dead. He's been recognized as triumphant by the heavenly powers and taken back into heaven as a sign of his exaltation. And our job, our job is to support that truth. So secondly, how do we measure such success? How do we know we're doing our job well? Well, look again at verse 15. Paul says, if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. He describes the church as a household. And he says, you know, there is a certain way that people should act when they come to this house. And he just doesn't, he doesn't mean, you know, don't run in, 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 amongst the pews and climb on the pews, but those are good rules too. But he's speaking specifically on how we should act as Christians. How we should live our lives. We all do this. I bet if I came to your home, you may want me to take my shoes off. Or there, maybe there's a certain chair I should or, or shouldn't uh, sit in. There's an etiquette to the household that we expect people to follow. Well, Paul is saying that about the church. There is a certain way that God's family should conduct themselves. Well, what is that way? Well, notice again, how does he describe the gospel in verse 16? It's the mystery from which true godliness springs. You've got the mystery. That's the gospel. He defines it in verse 16. And it produces true godliness. How do we know that we're doing our job? That we begin to imitate God in our conduct and in our character. And in our conformity to his word. And the more we know about God's truth. And the more we know particularly about his gospel. The more godly we should become. In our conduct. Again across the page. Chapter 4 verse 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do you will save both yourself. And your hearers. If you want to be recognized by God on the final day. Paul says you've got to watch your life and your doctrine. If you want the people under your care to persevere in the faith so as to be saved on the last day, then you watch your life and your doctrine closely. That we believe the right things and that we live in the way that flows from those things. So how do we measure our success? Well, just ask yourself, friend. Is the word transforming lives among us? Don't politicians ask that all the time? Ask yourself, are you better than you were one, two, three, four, five years ago? Well, ask yourself tonight as a Christian, am I godlier than I was? And I don't mean you never sin, but do you see your sin better? And are you growing in how you resist? Sin is the word transforming your life. Is the gospel being proclaimed? Are people coming to saving faith? That is the evidence. That the church is doing its job. And many of you can testify to that work in your life. That's a sign of God's favor and the church's success. So lastly then, on what do we base our hope for this mission? It's a challenging mission. It's a high standard of success. What assurance does God give us that we might actually be successful? Last time, look at verse 16. You've got those parallel lines. Some think this may have been an early Christian creed that Paul incorporates under inspiration into this letter to Timothy. And you've got four lines talking directly about the work of Christ. Appeared in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. And the last line, taken up into glory. 
That's what Christ has done to save us. But notice the fourth and fifth lines. They refer to how the gospel has been received. There we read that Christ was preached among the nations and believed on in the world. Now, Paul uses past tense, just like all these other lines in this creed. Let me ask you this. It's not a hard question. Had this taken place by the time Christ ascended back into heaven? Had the gospel been proclaimed throughout the world and embraced? No, not at all. It, it had begun. It was bearing fruit. It was going forth with me. Christ gave the great commission and then went back into heaven. So you, you got Gentiles in the gospels. You, you got Gentiles in Acts. But I mean, things don't even kick into high gear until the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. So how does Paul say with a straight face, the gospel has been preached among the nations and believed on in the world? I would argue because of the accomplishment of the other things that Christ has done make the accomplishment of these things just as certain. Because Christ has appeared, been vindicated, seen, and taken up, so he will also be preached and believed on in the world. We can be confident of our success in the mission of the church because it's grounded in the work of Christ. And I give thanks for the fact that our church has been able to be a part of that for what, 129 years are we at now? So I'm going to check my map later. Uh, by God's grace, because of his faithfulness, uh, we, we've enjoyed over a century of his mercies towards us. Actually, I think we're at 131. And we rejoice in those mercies. For 50 years now, the PCA uh, has been pursuing that same message as well. So let us pray, certainly, that the PCA will discern the will of God and make the right choice. That we will know what pleases the Lord in the issues before us. So let's thank God for his mercies and that the success of all this ultimately is grounded in Christ. And we can give thanks for that. So pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for the saints at Roebuck that have come out on a Sunday night to hear a report of a week of business. But Father, at the end of the day, it isn't just mere business, as if it was the report of an audit or a budget. Lord, it is the work of your church. And I do pray that you would help us all to pursue this work in the right way and to know and do your will and to glorify you so that we might enjoy you forever. Forgive us of our sins against you or others or your word. And give us your spirit to lead us in the way we ought to go. The way of love, the way of unity, the way of truth, the way of pleasing you. Be at work among all of us and help us in these things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.